yeah, I was shooting hoops and I got the, I got a phone call. I was you know home by myself and it was my, my mom, my adoptive mom and she's crying. And I thought she was laughing and I said like, she could barely talk. And I was like, are you okay? What's so funny? What's going on? Um, and through like this muffled breathing, she told me, um, that Shelly was shot and, you know, I, I was like, well, what happened? And then my mother gave the phone to one of her friends and apparently they'd gone to a shooting range. Um, you know, one of the friends decided that they should go to a shooting range and you know, practice or something. And yeah, one of the, one of the people there wasn't paying attention and yeah, basically like the, the, the weapon jammed and then fired into Shelly's back. Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. This episode is brought to you by my weekly email newsletter, Dear Luke. I write this newsletter for two reasons. The first is that a newsletter is generally considered to be a useful tool in building an authorial career. And since it's my intention to have an authorial career, I'm trying to get the newsletter dialed in. I want to play the game, and I want to play it well. Which leads to the second reason, trying to find content that makes sense as an email newsletter. I struggled for a while to find the right venue to place more intimate forms of writing, in which I discuss the challenges that I'm currently facing and what I find helpful in addressing them. And I've come to think that this is the right sort of thing to send directly to somebody's inbox. I've really enjoyed doing it so far, and I hope you can find some resonance in what I write there. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do so on my website, codycommerce.com newsletter, and uh, I'd really appreciate it, especially if you enjoy Cognitive Revolution or any of my other work. It's actually probably the biggest thing you can do right now to support me, and so it would mean a lot. You can also subscribe to Cognitive Revolution on whichever platform you may be listening through, or leave a review on iTunes, or follow me on Twitter, at Cody Commerce. All of those also help a lot. So uh, my guest this week is Rob Henderson. He is a Gates scholar at Cambridge doing his PhD in psychology. And he's written for such esteemed outlets as the New York Times and Quillette. As you'll hear, he served in the Air Force and grew up in the foster care system. And so he brings a, a really different perspective than the usual one to the academic realm. And I think people like Rob are exactly what we need in the academic world which is people who have a different set of life experiences than what is perhaps the median one, and who are also intelligent and thoughtful and doing their part to try and reconcile the empirical findings of psychological science with their own portion of the world that they've observed. So he's got such an interesting story, which is mostly what we talk about here, and if you find it compelling, I'm sure he'd appreciate it if you sign up for his newsletter, which you can find in his Twitter bio, at Rob K. Henderson. So there was, there was a tiny bit of an audio issue on my end during the recording, but it shouldn't be too much of a problem because I didn't honestly contribute that much to this conversation. Uh, but at any rate, that's enough of me. Here is Rob Henderson. I would love to uh, get into more of your story um, because I know you, you come from, from a really interesting and especially in our sphere, unique background. And um, uh, yeah, I want to hear a little bit more about that. So I know you lived in, uh, you know, when you're in the Air Force, you were stationed over here in Washington State. Where did you, where did you grow up? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, it, I do have a sort of unusual background, especially, yeah, for 
for people who are in our kinds of situations, you know, academic types. Uh, I grew up in L.A. Uh, early part of my childhood. And yeah, later sort of moved around California and joined the Air Force and spent some time in Europe and back to the U.S. for undergrad and then back across the pond here for grad school. And yeah, there was a lot of moving around. And yeah, so I mean, I've written about this, about my, my early life, uh, different, different publications for the New York Times, for the New York Post and others. And yeah, basically, I spent my early childhood in foster homes because my biological mother was a drug addict and she wasn't able to take care of me. And my father uh, was basically absent. Uh, my mother didn't know who he was. I certainly didn't know who he was. And so, yeah, I mean, because of my mother's addiction and, and you know, just sort of neglect, I was placed into foster care in L.A. and you know, so I used to think that I, I lived in uh, five foster homes, but I recently asked my my adoptive mother uh, about that, and she said, "Oh no, no, you lived in seven. So I lived in seven different foster homes uh, as a as a young kid from age three to uh, age seven, almost eight years old uh, when I was adopted, and then from there I moved to a small town in Northern California called Red Bluff." which has a population of something like 13,000, very rural, sort of like, I don't know if you picture in your mind, like the stereotypical image of like Kansas or Nebraska or something like rural, like cows, ranches, that kind of thing. Um, and so that was more of like a sort of working class small town, uh, which was quite different from, from where I was in LA. And yeah, I mean, there was, there was some more sort of drama from there because I was adopted by this married couple, um, a man and a woman and, and my adoptive sister. And they divorced shortly after adopting me. And there was this sort of custody dispute between them. And, you know, I was, I was just a young kid. And so I wasn't quite sure what was going on here, but eventually my, my mother, my adoptive mother got custody of me and my adoptive father uh, basically stopped talking to me after this. And yeah, so this was really hard on me because at this point I was like nine or 10 years old and I thought I'd had this sort of stable family life and then it was sort of you know, disrupted. And so, you know, all of this sort of took a, took a toll on me and it took a toll on like my, my schoolwork, my grades. Um, yeah, this sort of moving around to, to different homes, living in different family situations. Uh, really, yeah, it really had an effect on me. And even though I was always sort of a curious kid, I just was not a very good student at this point. Okay. And then, so, um, so, okay. So how did you, when did the, the air force come into it? What was the sort of transition there? What was your, did you have a thought process? Did you just sort of fall into it? Was that a turning point for you? What's it, what did that, um, transition look like? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was that was sort of later in high school. I mean, I still had sort of a ways to go, even in my my early adolescence. Um, okay, so were you so in that point? Were you did you were you sort of off track, um, or were you perhaps more on track than one would expect 
for someone in, in a sort of what do you make of, of where you're at there? I mean, I was I was pretty much on track for what you would expect for someone with my background. I mean, if you look at the statistics and the data for foster kids, they're really just abysmal. Um, something like I think it's sixty percent of boys who grew up in foster care um, end up spending some time in the criminal justice system. And yeah, I mean, I was kind of on my way. Um, you know, I wasn't really doing my homework and wasn't really paying attention in school. Um, I was sort of like lucky, honestly, because like I, I did a lot of dumb things and I just most of the time was never caught. Um, you know, including things like smoking, drinking, like I was like smoking weed when I was like 10 years old. Um, yeah. And so there was this sort of period of like, really, I was really, um, just unfocused and, and aimless as, as a, as a, as a kid. And there was a, a very brief period actually, um, in my in my childhood in my adolescence where there was some stability and so my mother when i was around 10 uh she uh met this woman and they entered a relationship together this woman shelly and they sort of raised me together and it was actually like a fairly stable um it was a good environment for me um we had like family dinners we had like family board night game board game nights and um yeah it was it was like very much a sort of typical family um you know perhaps other than the fact that you know it was it was my my mother and her partner rather than you know whatever man or woman or something but that was really good for me um but you know when i was 14 this is about 4 years later after you know after they had met uh shelly was shot and I took this really hard. And so basically what happened was, um, yeah, one day I was, I was outside, I was playing basketball, just shooting hoops by myself. This was, you know, back when we could still be outside. The good old days. And uh, shooting hoops. <laughs> yeah, the good old days. Um, yeah, what was this? This was like the mid 2000s, something like that. And yeah, I was shooting hoops and I got, the, I got a phone call. I was you know, home by myself and it was my, my mom, my adoptive mom. And she's crying, and I thought she was laughing. And I said, like, she could barely talk. And I was like, are you okay? What's so funny? What's going on? Um, and through, like, this muffled breathing, she told me um, that Shelly was shot. And, you know, I, I was like, well, what happened? And then my mother gave the phone to one of her friends, and apparently they had gone to a shooting range. Um, you know, one of the friends decided that they should go to a shooting range and you know, practice or something. And yeah, one of the one of the people there wasn't paying attention, and yeah, basically like the 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 weapon jammed and then fired into Shelley's back. Um, when yeah, just freak accident. Oh my god. Yeah, and um, yeah, so there was a a period of a couple of months of surgeries and uh, you know physical therapy after this and so on, where I just you know the whole dynamic of uh, the family changed and. Yeah, I mean, I sort of almost like reverted back to, you know, being this rebellious kid again, and my grades dropped and my interest in school and yeah, all of that stuff just sort of plummeted. And I yeah, got I mean, I was all, I was still sort of getting into trouble, but I just got into more trouble from there. You know, like, 
would sneak like spend the night at a friend's house and then like in the middle of the night like he would take his parents car keys and we'd be like driving around you know 14 years old um you know drugs and fighting and vandalizing buildings and yeah i mean it was it was bad and so by this point yeah i knew i was definitely not going to go to college i didn't even want to go um i didn't really like school that much at this point i liked the material i read a lot i, I would read the books textbooks and the assigned readings and stuff and i i found it really interesting but I just despised the idea of adults telling you what to do or the idea of like having to do homework. Uh, just, yeah, the thought of someone like wanting me to do all of that, I didn't like it. And, you know, I think in hindsight, a lot of this just sort of grew out of my general mistrust of adults and my belief that they were sort of unreliable, untrustworthy, and now you're trying to tell me to do something? Like, why would I do that? And so, so yeah, by this point, I yeah decided to join the military after. And, and, you know, like, this is kind of silly, but a big part of the reason is because I would sort of joke about it with with teachers or with my, my mom or with other people. I would say, you know, I'm just going to you know, go away and join the military. And a lot of them reacted with this kind of like, uh, why would you do that? Like, you know, this was 2007. Um, so we were still fighting two wars. And, you know, it was, yeah, it was just a, a period of time where a lot of people, you know, understandably wouldn't want their teenage son to join the military. And I would get this reaction from people like, oh, that's a bad idea. And this sort of made me want to do it more. And so. One day there was a recruiter at my high school campus and he told me like, oh, if you sign up to take this, this test, the ASVAB, it's the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, which is a standardized test to enter the military. He told me, uh, you know, if you sign up to take this test um, on the date of the test, which was like a Monday, um, you won't have to go to class that morning because you'll be taking the test. And you'll have like a pass for the day to not go to class. And I thought like, that sounds like a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> and so I signed up and I'm like, all right, I'll take this test, uh, whatever. Like the test is three hours long or something like that. And then I'll, yeah, leave at lunchtime and won't have to come back. So I signed up to take this test. And, you know, even the night before this test, which I didn't take seriously at all. I mean, I spent the night before like drinking I was playing Xbox uh, with my friends. Um, yeah, just totally didn't take this test seriously. Wait, what, what game on Xbox? Uh, Fight Night Round 3. Okay, so uh, it wasn't like Call Xbox of Duty Live. or something like that that would actually, you know, in theory, compare <laughs> not, not, even, not even a military game, man. Yeah. This was like a boxing so, game oh, so that you, was popular. So you were really not serious about this then? <laughs> yeah, I was just totally checked out, man. Yeah. And uh, all about just like having a good time and trying to like escape uh responsibility escape school and so i took this Wait, sorry, where where were you at this uh you so you were this was in high school yeah this was in high school so i was and this was your senior year senior year of high school that's right and, and where and this was in northern california yeah in in red bluff yeah northern okay, california okay. and yeah so so i took this test um and ended up scoring like really well on it and you know, i met with the recruiter and 
you know, he was like pulling up these charts and he was like, look, man, this is, this is a really good test score. You qualify for basically every job in the Air Force if you want to join. And so I, you know, I thought like, OK, this seems like, you know, maybe maybe a possibility to get away from here, you know, to get away from all of this. Um, by this point, uh, I'm 17 years old. I'm you know, a senior in high school. Shelly's accident, she ended up surviving, you know, but she was just, you know, very physically injured, um, unable to walk for a period of time, and then ended up having to use a walker for basically the rest of her life. And so she ended up getting this huge settlement, an insurance settlement, and she and my mother decided to invest in houses um, with this money. And, you know, as, as the idea goes that housing prices always go up, so it's always a safe investment. So they bought like a few houses. And this was... This was circa 2007. This was in 2007. And so this was basically... They bought these houses right before the housing bubble burst, and no one was buying houses anymore. And so basically, like, they lost all the money in their investment, and our own home was foreclosed. And yeah, I mean, at this point, they ended up moving into a smaller... Uh, residence and I ended moving in with a friend of mine and his dad and so yeah this was just like more chaos going on in the sort of you know ambient background of my life and so I was really thinking like well maybe the military is a good way to go um it would get me away from here I'd have like a guaranteed job and maybe someday in the future if I decide to go to college I'll have this um, you know GI bill which is a tuition benefit college tuition benefit so it was sort of a, a mix of, of motivations here. And yeah, I mean, even at that age, you know, you mentioned Call of Duty, like, you know, I did play those kinds of games too sometimes. And I watched like military movies. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and, and I saw the way that people respected, you know, people who have served. And I think some part of my 17 year old brain liked that, you know, that, oh, well, you know, this is a respected profession, people seem to like it and admire it. And, you know, maybe that would also be something um, worth doing. Yeah, okay. So uh, just one sort of naive question, why the Air Force instead of the Army or the Navy? Um, so I had a history teacher who I actually liked in high school. And, you know, even though I didn't really do a lot of the work that he assigned, like, I would still hang out after class sometimes and talk to him. And he was always just like, you know, really friendly and he was in the air force before he became a school teacher and yeah so he would talk about it and said like it was a good decision that he made at the time and then my friend's dad who i mentioned i had moved in with um he was also he was a police officer but before that he was in the air force and you know he told me that that he also you know recommended it and I had also talked to a couple of other people, um, people who'd been in the Marines or the Army or some of the others, and they said, um, you know, if I could go back, I would have joined the Air Force. And the reason for this, I think, is that the Air Force, you know, stereotypically, and, and it has some, some basis in reality, it isn't quite as sort of rigid as, say, the Marine Corps. Um, you know, in basic training and in tech school and training and so on, like, it is, it is kind of intense. But once you get to your official job, um, you're mostly treated as like a human being. <laughs> but like I have friends who were in the Marines, for example, and like their whole life is exactly like you see in the movies, like getting yelled at, like, you know, uh, respect for rank above everything else and so on. And 
So it wasn't quite as as um, as structured as that, but but it was a good structure for me um, at that age. And and I've talked about this before that I think a huge benefit for me and a lot of young guys um, who sort of have the background that I have, the military is essentially prison, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because when you're 17 or 18 and you have sort of uh you know whatever like you know prone to to acting on impulse and you know sort of uh willingness to get into trouble the military has such strict rules and such like predictable consequences for behavior like you know exactly what's going to happen if you sort of break a rule or don't show up to work on time or don't have your uniform in order like they make it very clear to you if you don't do this here is exactly what will happen and you know that they're serious whereas in the outside world you know in in regular life um if you're an 18 year old kid like you can kind of like guess that if you do something dumb there's a pretty good chance you could probably get away with it. And so for me, you know, during that, I I joined when I was 17. So from like 17 to like 19 or 20, when I was like at my like, you know, whatever worst young dumb guy phase, I was in this structure that would like guaranteed crush me if I did something dumb. So it kept me out of trouble. And I, and I actually think that that's an underrated aspect of the military. A lot of guys talk about the military as, you know, I learned discipline, I learned respect and camaraderie, and all of those things are true. Um, And I've talked about those things, too, and I think they're important. But at the same time, just keeping myself out of trouble, um, and other people out of trouble, like that is also something that I think maybe doesn't, doesn't get quite as much attention as maybe it should. So you had an early life through high school that was characterized by instability. And then in the military, you found the sort of ultimate apotheosis uh, level of stability. And um, did that, so did that, was that immediately obvious to you that that was, that you'd found something that you were looking for? Or was there a transitional period where you were sort of questioning your decision or what you'd done? Or was, did it immediately work out? How did that sort of initial phase play out for you? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, once I'd been through like all of the training and, um, started actually like doing my job. So I was, uh, an electronic warfare technician, um, which basically like I, I worked on missile warning systems, missile defense systems, uh, essentially like radar detection, this kinds of equipment to keep airplanes from getting shot out of the sky by surface to air missiles, heat seeking missiles, things like that. And so I worked with a lot of like guys who had sort of like you know, maybe, maybe not exactly similar backgrounds to me, but they were also sort of like in their youth, they were troublemakers or they got into trouble or whatever. And so I could relate to them guys who were not that much older, five, six, seven years older than me, um, they tended to be you know, my supervisors. And I would tell them what I was up to when I was a kid and they would tell me and I sort of bonded with them, but I also really respected them. Um, they were very good at their job. They were competent and, you know, they had, um, yeah, they just projected this like image of like a, a good role model. And I think that helped me a lot too, that I, I'd never really had that in my life, a sort of like, you know, older male figure to, um, to like, you know, model behavior or something. And so in the military, I had, you know, a lot of that. 
And that really helped me out a lot too. And so um, moving to different locations, um, I think aging too, probably. I mean, I really think like the difference between 17 and 18 and like 22 is, is huge. Um, no matter oh, where absolutely. you like, yeah, no matter where you end up, like even in college, right? Like the difference between freshman and senior year for, for college students is just, you know, huge. And so, um, between having those male role models, being a little bit older, traveling, seeing the world. So, you know, later, although I was initially stationed in Washington state, like you said, I, I'd also spent some time in Germany. I'd deployed a couple of times and yeah, just growing up. Uh, help me out. And so during one deployment, I was talking to uh, my supervisor there and he'd sort of, I, I had told him that, um, when was this? Yeah, this was 2011, 2012, something like that. Um, yeah, I'd, I had bought um, one of Steven Pinker's books uh, on the way to my deployment. Uh, so I was in uh, Qatar, so al and. I like a lot of people said like you should you should buy books you should um you know in preparation before I go um cuz when you're not working there's like literally nothing else to do except like read um like watch movies and work out there's like you know literally nothing else you can do on a deployment and, and was the uh the pinker book how, how the mind works uh yes 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 it was how the mind works and yeah amazing book and you know even though so at this point I had like no background in psychology whatsoever and yeah, I just like didn't really read psychology books in general. And so I found it like difficult to get through, but really interesting. And so then I started like watching um, uh, videos on psychology and, and buying other books and so on. And, and I thought like, oh, well, maybe maybe I could study psychology uh, in college. And then one of my supervisors, um, when I was deployed, told me, uh, yeah, you should. I mean, we have this great benefit, uh, this GI Bill, which pays for college tuition. And if, um, you know, if you choose to go, your tuition will be covered. And that's the military asks a lot of, um, you know, of service members. And that we also have this benefit that we can use when we get out. So don't forget to also sort of like, take the benefit as well as, you know, paying the cost. And so I took that seriously and yeah, over time started to think more about it and ended up going to this. Um, I mean, this was actually a, yeah, this was cold email, but basically like about a year before I was um, meant to separate from the military before I was discharged, I started like Googling, like whatever, like how to get into college, um, you know, uh, veterans like student veterans like trying to connect with people like maybe hear about their experiences uh, and how how old were you at this point how old was i, I was 24 23 24 and yeah so some people got back to me this guy uh kyle hathaway he was the vice president of the yale veterans association so he was in the navy and then he became a, an mba student at the yale school of management uh he emailed me back so he so there was like this this um on the yale veterans webpage or something uh there was like a general email like yaleveterans at gmail.com or something i emailed that asking like are there veterans at yale that i could talk to to ask about their experiences and you know what it was like for them to apply and so on and so this guy kyle got back to me and he recommended that i attend this program called the warrior scholar project 
which was started by two Yale students, one who was um, an Australian military veteran and another guy who was in ROTC at Yale, but he, so he was a football player and he suffered a back injury, so he couldn't join the military. So he ended up helping to build this program instead to help veterans prepare for college. So they basically take enlisted veterans like me um, and basically teach them how to be a student. Um, yeah, there are a lot of enlisted guys who haven't been in school for several years. They weren't good students, you know, kind of like me. Or, yeah, they just need to sort of shake the rust off. Um, should also say at the outset here, uh, or we're not really at the outset, but like of, of this, basically, um, that in the military, there are two, um, there are basically two tracks. So one is the enlisted track, and these are the guys who join right out of high school, um, sort of like your, your grunts or your sort of like low-level guys. And then there's the uh, the officer corps. So these are the people who attend like service academies or ROTC, West Point, the Naval Academy. And in order to become a military officer, you need a bachelor's degree uh, or higher. And so the Warrior Scholar Project was specifically designed for, for veterans um, who were enlisted. And this was held at Yale um, and it was a two week program. And while I was there, I actually found myself really enjoying it, um, you know, learning how to write essays and learning how to interact with professors and um, learning about the application process as a non-traditional student. It was really valuable for me. Um, okay, so what was, your, what was your perception around this time of the fact that you were potentially going to go to Yale? So from the background you came from, I can't imagine that that was something that you had always planned on doing or anything like that so did you look at that and think oh this is this is really weird did you feel oh i don't i don't belong here what was your what was your sort of state of mind surrounding that how did you perceive it yeah yeah i mean at this point so i hadn't yet officially become a student but i was sort of becoming adjusted to the idea of it and i yeah i mean i, I was in a state of awe honestly like in a weird way, like it's this sounds weird to say, but even today, like I still can't quite believe that that I ever went to Yale or that I'm at Cambridge. It's there's still this feeling of disbelief. And it, I mean, it was especially potent during that early period of when I'd first gotten to, to Yale and like, how did all of this happen? And um, yeah, I mean, I found myself, yeah, slightly nervous, but also like, yeah, really grateful. And so went through that program, later on applied to a bunch of colleges, um, ended up getting into Yale, um, and yeah, uh, of course, accepted that decision and, and, and went as a student and spent, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, there was this period of like awe, but also of um, a little bit of loneliness in the beginning, simply because most students at Yale are like your typical 18 year old students, first year students, you know, very typical um, college age. Okay, so, sorry, before, so I want to get the pulse of something here, which is, that, so a lot of your sort of intellectual ideas that you've developed since then have been sort of based around this sort of cultural disparity between what you knew and what you saw growing up uh, and in the military uh, and what the sort of average median background is for an Ivy League student or a student at Cambridge. Um, and so I'm guessing, or I'm, I'm trying to, like I said, 
through Skin Pulse on what were your expectations going in? Did you expect that? You expect it to be that dramatically different in terms of the experience of sort of uh, unworldly eighteen-year-olds. Uh, where where were you at on that? What was your expectation for your peers coming in? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, so, uh, my expectation going in. So when I, when I had spent this time at the Warrior Scholar Project, you know, months prior preparing to go to college, there were tutors in this program, and most of them were either Yale students or recent Yale graduates. They were also graduates from sort of other um, you know top institutions. They're helping out. And I found them all like really bright, friendly, curious people. Um, yeah, just I, I really got along with them, even though we came from completely different backgrounds. I found myself um, really enjoying our conversations. Um, and so that was sort of in my mind what Yale students were like. And, you know, in, in hindsight, like I realized that the kind of Yale student who would spend part of their summer dedicating their time to helping military veterans are probably not exactly, you know, representative of every single Yale student. And so, but that was what I thought at that time, you know, still, still sort of like naive to, to, um, yeah, to, to what I was about to get into. And so when I got to Yale, um, yeah, I thought like, okay, so, you know, they're going to be younger, they're going to be different, they're going to be, you know, richer, and, you know, a good portion of them have basically spent their entire lives training to get into Yale. Um, so they're going to be very bright. And so, you know, I'd also read a little bit in preparation too. So I had read stories in the Atlantic and the New Yorker and, you know, these kinds of publications about campus politics and what's going on in these schools and so on. And yeah, I mean, a lot of them were, you know, sort of somewhat critical of students some of them were were more favorable but basically saying like students are, are student protesters are asking for all of these things and um you know is it reasonable is it not reasonable um are these institutions inherently oppressive and so on and i found these i didn't i didn't understand these articles to be quite quite frank i mean i just didn't get what they were quite talking about because i hadn't grown up in that world so i couldn't speak that language and so I got to Yale, um, you know, completely innocent of, of, of it. And about, you know, about, well, basically, like, I started making friends fairly early on. Like I said, I was a little bit lonely, but I, I did my best to make connections. And I made these sort of tenuous connections with different students, um, made some, some friends that I'm, I'm still friends with to this day. Um, but I found it pretty difficult going along. But then something happened that completely changed, like, at least half of those relationships, which was an email sent by this faculty member, Erica Christakis. Um, and you probably know something about this story. Um, but that happened. And, you know, there was this basically like she sent this email um, uh, in response to the Yale, like Yale administration telling students to be careful about what Halloween costumes they wore. So this was, you know, October, 2015, eight weeks after I had gotten out of the military. Um, Yale administration sends an email, be careful what costumes you wear. Then Erica Christakis writes an email saying, you know, basically defending free expression and saying like, do we want the administration telling us what to wear and so on. Um, and I, again, was like pretty innocent of campus politics and, and the sort of, um, these turf battles going on within universities. And so I was totally bewildered 
by the student reaction to all of this of the accusations of racism, of um, you know their treatment of Nicholas Christakis uh, in the courtyard of Silliman College, where he was uh, the master of that college, of the uh, the way that the culture had changed, at least you know during that period of time, where I would openly ask, like, I really don't see what the problem is with this email that Erica Christakis wrote. And I lost friends over this. Um, there was a, yeah, one student, um, yeah, like totally cut me out of her life because I told her I didn't understand. Um, other people weren't quite as bad as that, but basically like stopped talking to me shortly thereafter. Uh, and so this was, a uh, this kind of rattled me that, that this was going on. And this like really drove me to understand, you know, what, what was really going on here? What was... Like, what was the Yale administration doing? What were these students protesting against? Um, you know, basically trying to grasp campus politics uh, on the deepest level that I could, simply because I was a complete outsider. And, and yeah, this was sort of a, maybe my most formative experience that I had at Yale was that period, um, simply because it was very early, right? Like, that was basically my introduction to Yale. And um, also my confusion uh at that time because i saw students who i knew were far wealthier than anyone that i'd ever met in my life and sort of claiming that they had they were put upon or that that yale was against them or that they felt unsafe and then i'd go two blocks down to my apartment off campus because yale doesn't let non-traditional students live on campus and on the way, I'd pass, you know, homeless people and drug addicts and and all kinds of, you know, poverty in New Haven. And so this, I mean, that was basically like a, you know, a, a constant reminder of the difference between one end of the social spectrum in America and, and another. And, you know, the kind of blindness um, to it that I that I saw. So and and so when did you first read Thorsten Veblen? Yeah, yeah. When did I read him? Uh I probably let's see I I dipped into him on and off throughout undergrad. Um yeah, reading his work and yeah, basically trying to so I I read him and then I read Bordeaux as well and basically trying to understand these sort of class distinctions, these class differences. Uh, between, say, the working class, middle class, and upper class. And over time, I developed, yeah, my idea of, of luxury beliefs. Um, yeah. Wait, okay, so let me, let me say, let me just parrot what I know about your um, sort of idea, which I find a very compelling idea. Actually, I actually really like this idea, partially because uh, I, I love uh, Bevelin's theory of the leisure class. I always found that, a, like, they're a super... Um, like like just a ton of explanatory power in that account. But the basic idea is so you have this um, sort of what was the early uh, 20th century Norwegian American philosopher Thorsten Veblen, and he says, "Look, so, okay, so if you go out there, you see essentially rich people, people in what he calls the leisure class, buying a bunch of things that they don't need." And he's saying, "Well, look, the the it, what's happening here is that these are fundamentally social signals." 
um, that they are, the value is not in the thing itself. It's not because the Rolex tells time better than the Timex. It is because um, it is what he calls conspicuous consumption. Uh, and, and this uh, is uh, a signal about um, class membership, essentially, the, the leisure class, people who don't have to work with their hands in the same way that the working class do. And so you basically take this idea and say, look, well, okay, so um, material possessions have become increasingly easier to come by, such that the bottom level is able to attain the material aspects of conspicuous consumption um, more so than they were in Bevelin's day. And so they essentially need a new way to differentiate um, what, uh, you know, sort of basically find new signals of their uh, membership of this leisure class, uh, which, of which, you know, the, the Yale students, uh, Yale undergraduates are going to form a very uh, sort of central part of that class. And um, you look at that and say, okay, well, look, the, the sort of suite of beliefs with these really highfalutin terminology and nomenclature, um, like cultural appropriation and this and that and whatever, uh, which uh, are sort of part of the Ivy League um, sort of uh, you know, vocabulary, but not necessarily the working class one, is the new way of, of distinguishing that. And that is now this, this idea of luxury beliefs uh, as what you are consuming conspicuously as opposed to material things. So is that, that, that's my understanding of your position on it and how it connects to this for the earlier stuff. So is that, um, uh, so uh, A, yeah, I did, you know, feel free to fill that out. And then B, I'm curious when you sort of started to connect the dots on, uh, you know, these things you would understand from reading other people on class. And then uh, when did you start thinking that maybe there was, uh, uh, you know, this was a, a useful way of, of, of characterizing what you were, you were seeing in the beliefs of your colleagues? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely started. And, and that was, yeah, that was very well put, a good summary. Uh, but it started, yeah, basically with these personal observations. So, so one was um, that that winter in 2015, uh, winter break, I flew home to California from New Haven. And my mom and my sister and, and other members of my family, people I grew up with, were like, so what's going on at Yale? What's it like there? And so on. And um, and I told them like, yeah, there was this, you know, whole contra this controversy and everything. And they just could not wrap their mind around it at all. Like they didn't get it. They didn't really get the debate about free expression. Even they didn't get, um, you know, what the protest was about and so on. And, you know, I explained it to them and then eventually they did get it. But in the beginning, just sort of like giving them a, an overview of it, they were just like, well, what's, what's the big deal and so on. And, um, I realized that there were these these sorts of turf wars, these beliefs, these um, sort of political disputes uh, happening at elite universities that no one really uh, knows about in in sort of the working class and say the, like the lower middle class, people who don't read the New York Times religiously or have a subscription to the Atlantic or, you know, whatever, like listen, listen to, uh, to NPR or something or, or the cognitive revolution. Um, you know, people who, who are just sort of like working their, their, their jobs and so on and, and not really connected to, to that, to that world. 
And this led me to, to look more into the research, into the literature, into Thorsten Veblen, to Pierre Bordeaux, and even to some, yeah, to some, uh, yeah, sociological research on this, on social class, um, reading other books, uh, more modern books. I think uh, Richard Reeves has, has a book about social class. Um, even, uh, I know he's, he's, you know, terribly controversial. Uh, Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart, um, which was not a controversial book. Um, I found that book to be super useful in understanding what was going on. Uh, you know, the sort of working class and upper class divide in America. And over time, I, I came up with this idea, which, you know, I think the term itself might be new, but the observation underlying it really isn't. Like you said, you know, Veblen came up with it a long time ago of, of, of goods, but I'm substituting it with beliefs. For example, um, only someone educated at an elite university could could fluently speak um, with certain kinds of vocabulary. Like, okay, so I'll give you an example. Uh, shortly after I got to Yale, I um, joined uh, the Yale Record, which was a humor magazine there. And so the we were, we were having a brainstorming session. You know, what kinds of headlines we we would uh, use for for that for that month's issue. And one of my headlines was, um, it was something like, Area Male Discovers a Porn Gold Mine in His Front Right Pocket. And, you know, whatever, kind of juvenile, but, but I, you know, whatever. And so I thought, like, this is, like, good enough for a brainstorming session, at least. And the editor looks over at me and kind of raises an eyebrow, and he was like, well, why does it have to be gendered? And I, I had no idea what that meant. Um, I, I knew what gender meant, but I didn't know what gendered meant. And I had no idea how that related to my headline idea. And so that is an example of something, you know, only someone educated in, in a certain kind of institution, growing up with, with a certain kind of habitus in a certain kind of milieu would, would be able to throw a comment out there like that. And, and also expect the, their interlocutor to understand what they're saying um, and just take it for granted that everyone knows what that means. Um, and so to me, yeah, luxury beliefs also encompass vocabulary in addition to, you know, opinions, social opinions. That was my conversation with Rob Henderson. I hope you enjoyed it. I think a lot of what he said sort of speaks for itself. And it's interesting to hear how some of his ideas sort of contextualized in how his experience informed them. Like anything, the conclusions he draws are, are ones that everyone will always agree with all the time, but his basis for them and the thrust behind them becomes clearer as you hear more about his story. And regardless of that, though, I hope uh, everyone found the events themselves that he described to be as compelling as I did. If you want to follow Rob, you can connect with him on Twitter. You can also connect with me on Twitter as well as through my email newsletter. So thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with more Cognitive Revolution.